Well, now for a more upbeat things like Matthew 11, 1 to 19. If you're just joining us in the book of Matthew, friends, you've come at a good time. Uh, chapter 11 starts a new section of Matthew's gospel. Uh, at this point in Matthew, we're probably over a little over a year or so into Jesus's three-year ministry. Uh, so far in Matthew, we have seen through Jesus's words, his teaching, and his works, his miracles, that he is the one for whom God's people have looked for millennia. He's the Messiah King promised to sit on David's throne. Matthew presents Jesus as Israel's hope and the nation's hope. He is God's agent of salvation for the world. But we've also seen in Matthew, haven't we, that, that Jesus isn't merely an agent of God. He is God in the flesh. His words and deeds testify of an authority that only God has. So when it comes to, to who Jesus is, to his identity, Matthew has, has lit up, as it were, a bright fluorescent neon sign time and time again. It is flashing. This is who Jesus is. You do, you do not have to be a New Testament scholar to see this. Clearly, Matthew presents Jesus as both Israel's king and the son of God. And in our text today, Matthew 11, that neon sign, friends, is flashing again before us. But this time, we see Jesus' identity revealed not through his teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount or something like that, or through a particular miracle like we saw in Matthew 8 and 9. Instead, that neon sign glows in a surprising way. This morning, we're going to learn more of who Jesus is and what he came to do through someone's doubt. And not just anyone's doubt. The doubt of the one whom Jesus calls the greatest human to ever live. How's that for a teaser? Let's read together Matthew 11, 1 to 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is, who, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, 
And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Friends, I think that the structure of this text of Matthew is easy to see. Each section of our passage is headed by a question. In verse 2, we see a question from John the Baptist about who Jesus is. And then in verse 7 and 8, Jesus asks a series of questions to the crowd about who John is. And then in verse 16, Jesus asks another question about the response of that generation to both Jesus and John. So our, our outline today kind of mirrors those three sections and the questions that they ask. Number one, who is Jesus? We see that in verses 1 to 6. Number two, who is John? Verses 7 to 15. And then the closer the response, how will you respond from verse 16 to 19? Friend, I think the main idea of this, this portion of Matthew's gospel is this. The identity of Jesus is unmistakable. So how will you respond to him? The identity of Jesus could not be clearer. We're going to see it shining before us again today, both in his response to John the Baptist and even in his teaching, the crowds about who John is and how John reflects him. But then Jesus directs us to a response. He brings us to a, a decision, crossroads. How will we respond to him? Well, friends, I pray that we might see Jesus clearly this morning and that our hearts might thrill at what we see, whether it's for the first time that you follow Jesus for the first time or whether it's for the 2,000th time that we would see the Lord Jesus and that we would respond to him in worship and in faith. So let's look at that first point from the first six verses. Who is Jesus? Verse 1 bridges the content of chapters 10 and 11. It's kind of a bridge verse. When Jesus finished instructing his disciples about their mission and their witness in chapter 10, he then resumes his main ministry activity, verse 1 says. He went back to the teaching and preaching, instructing and proclaiming in the cities of Galilee. Verse 2 a figure we met earlier in Matthew's gospel makes a reappearance. Remember back in, in chapter 3, John burst onto the scene in the desert of Judea, preaching a message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven, he said, was at hand. And remember that John baptized as a symbol of people's turning from sin to God. It was a baptism of repentance. He even baptized Jesus himself. Not because Jesus was a sinner, but so that Jesus might fully represent a sinful people before God. But now in Matthew 11, John the baptizer, John the Baptist, as we commonly call him, is in prison. He's incarcerated for publicly calling out the immorality of Herod Antipas. We know this from other passages of the Gospels. Herod had divorced his wife and married his niece, Herodias, who was also the wife of his half-brother. Other non-biblical sources corroborate this fact. Even the non-Christian Jewish historian Josephus wrote that John the Baptist was imprisoned for many months at the fortress of Machaerus, east of the Dead Sea. By the time we get to this event in Matthew 11, John has been languishing in prison for close to a year. Look at what John does in verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to, to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah, in other words, or shall we look for another? Now, now hold on a second. 
isn't John the guy who boldly preached, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight? Isn't John the one who, who saw Jesus coming and cried out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Yeah, he is that guy. So what happened to that guy? Like, who is this? What have you done with John the Baptist, right? Why the sudden doubt about Jesus? Well, you might think that, you know, a natural kind of logic might be, well, well, John's in prison. He hasn't heard about what Jesus has been doing. But in, in fact, verse 2 says it's just the opposite. Did you see that? It's because John heard about what Matthew calls the deeds of the Christ the works of the Messiah, that he began to doubt Jesus' identity. Now, that's, that seems very strange, doesn't it? Because as we've studied Jesus' ministry, we've seen how clearly these very deeds testify to his identity as the Messiah and as the divine Son of God. But for John, those deeds had the opposite effect. So what's going on? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly. We have to at least admit that. But I think we get a very good clue from John's understanding of the Messiah recorded earlier in Matthew. Listen to John's message in Matthew 3, 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what John understood the Messiah's work to be about. In other words, John fully expected a Messiah that would exercise God's vengeance against his enemies. He proclaimed a Messiah with a winnowing fork in his hand that would divide the righteous from the unrighteous so that he might bring about justice against the unrighteous. And of course, friends, this is part of the Messiah's work, isn't it? The prophets foretold it. God's king would indeed exercise God's dominion thoroughly over his enemies. But as John languished in prison and, and report after report after report came in about what Jesus was doing, none of them included that. None of them included deeds of, of the prophesied judgment and wide-scale deliverance over their enemies. There was nothing in the reports about Jesus marshalling armies to conquer Rome. There was nothing that indicated Jesus had even lifted a finger against Herod for throwing John in prison. So here's how one commentator put it. Where was the thunder of judgment? Where was the rebuke of the wicked? Why this use of power over demons, but not over evil men? Why did Jesus consort with them in their feasting? Why did he allow the prophet of God's righteous wrath against sin to rot in Herod's jail without a word of protest. And so angsty, restless John sends the question to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Friends, I think John's response, it, it kind of reveals a truth, a maxim about life in general. Hard stuff, hard circumstances, plus delayed deliverance, plus a misguided or misapplied theology equals doubt. Hard stuff accompanied by delayed deliverance, accompanied by a misguided or misapplied theology, often results in doubt. I'm sure that's been the case in your life. 
before. I wonder if this morning even you can empathize with John the Baptist. You read the Bible's promises about God's justice rolling down like waters. The promise that all suffering will one day end and you just cannot make it square with what you see on the news. Or maybe what you've experienced in this life. This world is just brimming with wrongs that are not being righted. Rampant wickedness in our culture seems to go unchecked. The godly at times suffer more than the ungodly. And I wonder if the the seeming lack of action by the God you worship has caused you to doubt whether He'll even act at all. Somewhere deep down in your heart, you've begun to look for another. Maybe it's not so much the injustice out there in the world as the constant frustrating circumstances in your life. Maybe you've dealt for years with a hard marriage. If you're honest, your your home isn't a source of security or safety or happiness. You and your spouse kind of vacillate between a cold neutrality and a broiling conflict. And you wonder, if God is who he says he is, why doesn't he make this better? Why doesn't he act now? Doesn't he want me to be happy? Why doesn't he help me now with my terminal sickness or my estranged children or my frustrating job or my constant grief or my same-sex attraction or my besetting sin? If Jesus is the king, why won't he do something now to change my circumstances? Does he not care? And if you're honest, although you'd never say it out loud, you have begun to drift away from Jesus and you've begun to look for another. Friends, in some ways, I hope you will say it out loud. I hope you'll do exactly what John does. John does not let his doubts overcome him. He takes them to Jesus. He takes them to the only one who can help. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't put John on blast. John, wake up, you idiot. What a dummy you are. He doesn't chide him for an immature understanding of his person and work. He doesn't brush him off. Hey, you know, come again when you've got a better question to ask. No, Jesus answers him. Friends, Jesus has loads of grace for doubters. He has a tenderness for those who are truly looking for answers. Jesus knows that John isn't asking with the hard heart of a skeptic, but with the, the heart of faith seeking understanding. So Jesus answers John in a way that will help him fill out his theological understanding. He he doesn't just say, well, of course I am the Messiah, John. No, he instead responds by listing for John his mighty works. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. It's like someone asking Michael Jordan or Tom Brady, are you the GOAT? Are you the greatest of all time, or shall we look for another? Then MJ or Brady, instead of answering the question directly, just sends them a mixtape of his greatest highlights, right? Don't take my word for it. Just look at what I've done. Jesus lists for John the very works that John had heard about. We studied them together in chapters 8 and 9. No human being, friends, had ever done these things. And yet, when John heard of Jesus' works, all he saw was the lack of judgment. So Jesus suggests that John rehearse these deeds again. Look at them more carefully. 
because they signal something, John, that's massively important. You see, Jesus' answer is not just a picture of his greatest hits. Jesus uses the language of two portions of Isaiah to make his point. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, and Isaiah 61, 1. Both of these passages, friends, speak of the restoration of God's people from their exile. Isaiah pictures God rescuing his people with a deliverance so great, it's going to look like a new exodus, except on a much more massive scale. And Isaiah has to be talking about more than, than Israel's physical return from Babylon to Palestine, because Isaiah says this deliverance will bring about everlasting joy and a blessing for God's people. It will be such a complete deliverance that the results of this new exodus is going to look like a new creation has dawned. Just read our call to worship today, and you'll see some of that language in there. In Isaiah 35, listen to get to again what Isaiah says will be the signs that God has come to rescue his people. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. I wonder if when Jesus sent the word back, John's mind went to where it should have gone, to Isaiah 35. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's as if Jesus is saying, John, listen, everything you need to see in order to know that the kingdom has come and the Messiah has arrived, it is happening. God is opening the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and, and strengthening the legs of the lame and loosing the tongue of the mute. Oh, and by the way, John, he's raising the dead to life too. God is doing those things because I am doing those things. John, John it's like Jesus is saying, John, I see your, your coming one question and I'll raise you one. Not only has the Messiah arrived, God has arrived to save his people. And, and look, John, the poor have the good news preached to them. Just like Isaiah 61.1 says will happen when the Messiah comes. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to, to bring good news to the poor. Oh, friends, the gospel of the kingdom is good news to the spiritually and physically needy. Because in Jesus, our status is reversed and we are made full participants in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus says to John, this is what it's supposed to look like when God's reign on earth begins, when the Messiah arrives. Remember Isaiah's words, John. When God comes to rescue his people, the brokenness and suffering of this world are going to begin to roll back. God will begin to reverse the curse. And don't you see that's what's happening? It's like the bright future age when all things will be made right has erupted now into this dark, evil age of suffering and injustice and death. Jesus is saying, my miracles signify that the kingdom has come. God's reign is here. Now, in John's defense, friends, when the, when the prophets prophesied of the Messiah's day and the coming kingdom, they foresaw both salvation and judgment happening at the exact same time. The surprise as salvation history unfolded in the coming of Jesus is that he unveiled his work in two different stages and in two different advents, comings. In his first coming, Jesus came to redeem and to save. It's not until his second advent that he'll ex execute justice 
upon the nations to bring the day of the vengeance of our God. So Jesus is correcting John's messianic expectations. I think here's Jesus' point to John, essentially. John, you're spending so much time looking for the consummation of my kingdom that you are missing the inauguration of it, staring you straight in the face. Just look at all the ways that I'm at work. Beloved, if you identify this morning with the doubt of John the Baptist, I think the solution for you is in many ways the same as it was for him. Instead of clawing in your heart after God to do certain things now, systemic justice on this earth, now, a better marriage, now, relief from suffering, now. Friends, these are, these are things that God has not promised us in this life. Instead of clawing after what you want God to do now, you need to refocus your heart on what God has already done in Jesus the King. God has already put on display His new creation, His redeeming power through Jesus Christ. Just look at your life. Just look around this room. That's all you have to do. You'll see flashes of the new creation gathered here today. I wish I could take you, in many ways, I wish I could take you on a trip around the world and see, let you see even what God is doing in some of the local churches that we pray for on Sunday morning. I'll take you through the Persian Gulf region, throughout the Muslim world, or to cities in China, or throughout Brazil. Friends, God's kingdom power is still at work. It's on display. What more do you need to see? Friends, Jesus did not just proclaim a good news, a gospel that God has come to save sinners. He became the embodiment of that good news. He rescued rebellious traitors like you and me that have spurned our creator in our pride and self-sufficiency. Jesus lived in our place, the life that we should have lived and didn't. In his death on the cross, he satisfied God's wrath against our sin if we turn to him in faith. And he rose gloriously from the dead to defeat death for us so that we would never again know its sting. What John didn't know is that Jesus had come to exercise a certain type of judgment, but it would be a judgment that would fall on him for us. He had come to conquer, but it would be a far more sweeping victory than toppling Rome. Jesus laid siege on the kingdom of Satan and loose the chains of our bondage to sin and death. Friends, it's because we have seen Jesus' power on display in the, the already of the kingdom that we have so much confidence for the not yet. You understand that? It's because what Jesus has already done in his first coming that we have so much confidence about what he's going to do in his second coming. It's because Jesus the King got up from the grave that we have hope that we will do the same one day. It's because God judged our sin in Jesus' death that we're confident that he'll bring about a full justice on the last day. It's because he put an end to the penalty and power of sin that we, want, we know that one day he'll put an end to our suffering as well. So Jesus says in verse 6, blessed, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's how he wraps up the John the Baptist. Don't be offended, John. I'm introducing the kingdom in an unexpected way. I've not come to remove 
Roman domination, right? I've not come to remove those shackles from you, to reverse the, the edicts of Herod. I've come to, to bring God's blessing of salvation upon all those who would accept me, who are not offended by me. Jesus knows that, that many, including John himself, might be tempted to stumble, to trip over such a king. And so he reminds us that he's the source of this blessing. He's the source of this, this life of flourishing that God intends. Only those who unreservedly embrace this Messiah King who can have that life. Even those who, like John, suffer in the likes of a Jewish, Jewish dungeon. Who is Jesus? He's the King and He is God. Let's move on to the second point. Who is John? Who is John? In verse 7, as Jesus' disciples depart to relay Jesus' message to John, Jesus addresses the crowds concerning him. I think he wants to make sure the crowds don't get the wrong impression about John. Just because John was struggling with doubts, it doesn't diminish who he was as God's messenger. So in teaching the crowds about John, Jesus is going to, again, teach the crowds more about himself. In verses 7 to 9, look at these rhetorical questions that Jesus asks. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Uh, well, no. <laughs> if there's anything that John wasn't, he wasn't flimsy, right? His message didn't bend according to popular opinion of the crowds or the religious leaders. What then did you go out to see? Jesus continues, a man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Yeah, no way. <laughs> That's not what the crowds went to see either. It wasn't John's sophistication and refinement, you know, the silks and satins of, of, his, of, his, uh, of his wardrobe. That is not what attracted the masses. John didn't wear those things. He, he wore the rugged apparel befitting a desert dweller. He wore camel's hair and a leather belt. He, he ate locusts for an entree and, and, and the honey for a dessert. I mean, that's who he was. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? And now Jesus answers his own question. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus says, you went out into the desert because you believed that John had a word from the Lord. But he's more than that. He's like a prophet plus. You've heard of Disney plus? Well, John was the prophet plus, right? How so? He explains, this is he who, of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Prince John is a prophet plus because he is the messenger that Malachi prophesied would prepare the way for the Lord's coming at the, at the end of days when the Lord would come to judge. So the, the reason that people should so highly regard John the Baptist as a as the prophet is that he, the prophet, was the subject of prophecy. He was the immediate forerunner who would announce the Lord's coming to his people. And that's how Jesus sums it up in verse 14 also at the end of the passage when he, when he draws a straight line connection from Malachi 3.1 to Malachi 4.5. John is the Elijah-like prophet that Malachi prophesied would come before the arrival of the day of the Lord to turn people's hearts back to, back to him. But then Jesus makes two stunning statements in verse 11. Here's the first one. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Wow. It's not just that John was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He should be regarded as the greatest human being up to this point. 
So pivotal was John's role in redemptive history as the personal messenger of the Messiah and his kingdom that Jesus says there's no one greater than him. No one in human history holds a candle to John. Not Alexander the Great. He's not as great as John. Not Plato or Aristotle or Genghis Khan or Confucius or Cleopatra or the Queen of Sheba. None of them are as great as John. Their one shining moment in human history was entirely overshadowed by the locust-eating prophet in the desert. So too with the prophets and Old, and Old Testament figures that preceded John. John's greatness outstripped King David, a man after God's own heart, the prototypical Israelite king. John's greatness exceeded Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, and Abraham, who was a friend of God. None of them were as great as John the Baptist because they all stood further off-center in God's redemptive plan. But John was right in the dead center. He personally prepared the way for the Christ. He even baptized Jesus, right? Assisting, as it were, with Jesus' coronation as king when God declared Jesus to be his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Friends, Jesus highlights John's greatness, not, not so much to highlight his character as his role. John was so great because of his connection to Jesus. If John is the greatest human being because of his proximity to Jesus, friends, then how unimaginably great must that make Jesus? Perhaps John's greatness is a bit like the moon. There's nothing all that special about the moon, is there? It doesn't even radiate its own light like the stars do. But because of the moon's proximity to the earth and its relationship to the sun, the moon is the night's greatest light. Friends, John was great not because he shone brightly from his own person, but because of his proximity to the glory of Jesus that gave him a greatness that outshone all others. John continues with a second stunning statement in verse 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Friends, this is amazing. I want to circle back to this at the end. So hold that thought. Okay, what John says there, we're going to swing back to it in just a few moments. Let's continue. In verse 12, Jesus uncovers more of John's greatness and his own greatness by, by pointing to something that's happening significantly regarding the kingdom of God. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by, by force. Well, this verse may look straightforward and, and harmless, but it's, it's actually a thorny one, one of the more thorny ones in the New Testament. If you're reading an ESV, you'll probably see a footnote that suggests an alternate reading. You see that? Instead of the kingdom suffering violence, the alternate reading is the kingdom has been coming violently. So, real quick Greek lesson. Um, in Greek, the reason for this possibility of the, these two readings is that in ancient Greek, verbs in the passive voice and verbs in the middle voice were spelled exactly the same way. So the only way that you could tell the difference between the passive voice, like the kingdom has suffered violence, and the middle voice, the kingdom is, is advancing violently, is the context, right? It's the context of what it is. So is it possible that that Matthew intends to say that the kingdom has suffered violence? Yes, that is possible. It could be that he's talking about persecution. It could be that he's talking about maybe even Herod's putting John in jail. 
But it also is possible that John intended to write, or excuse me, that Matthew intended to write in the middle voice, meaning that the kingdom is the subject of the verb. The kingdom is acting for its own benefit. It's advancing forcefully. It's making its way powerfully in the world. And certainly we know that that's what was happening at that time because Jesus had come. Now, the reason I'm taking time to get into the weeds a bit is because I think Matthew actually intended the verb to be translated in the way that the ESV says there in, in the footnote, that, the, that the, the middle voice, that the kingdom has been coming since the time of John, the kingdom has been coming violently. Contextually, it makes sense, right? In the arrival of John, the, the, you know, something hugely significant in redemptive history was taking place. John, it, you know, he announced that the kingdom of heaven had drawn near, that the Messiah was on the way, and since that time, since Jesus had come, the kingdom was on the move in such a forceful way that you could even describe it as violent. That's what I think is happening. If you come to the conclusion that it, it's like the primary reading in the ESV, no problem. Okay, It's one of those tough interpretive decisions. So what does the second phrase mean, that the violent take it by force? Well, again, it, it could mean that evil men attack the kingdom by persecuting its messengers. It's possible. But I also think it's possible that Jesus uses the image of a, of a violent person to describe the forcefulness necessary to enter the kingdom. It's not going to happen on its own, friends. It requires a radical response from those who want to follow Christ and enter the kingdom. So listen to Luke 16, 16, okay? Luke 16, 16, this is a parallel passage. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is, of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So if I'm right, Luke 16, 16 helps to clarify Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is advancing forcefully, and it requires a forceful reaction to it. In other words, here's what Jesus means. You can't drift into the kingdom of heaven. But friends, neither do you enter it by self-effort, by working your hardest to get in. That's not what Jesus means by a forceful entering. Rather, the way that you lay hold on the kingdom forcefully is by abandoning yourself to the king. You turn from your sin and you grab hold of Christ. Friends, did you know that you can do that this morning? You don't need to wait for anyone to lead you in a particular type of prayer or some supercharged spiritual moment, if God is at work in your heart right now, and you believe that Jesus to be the Christ who he says he is, then friends, you're beginning to seize the kingdom by force. Now take that step in your heart and say, I want to follow this king. I want to give my life to him. I want to turn from my path that leads to destruction and walk the path of life in his kingdom, knowing that he died and rose again for me so that I might be forgiven and restored to God. I hope you'll do that this morning. In verse 13, Jesus explains how he could say what he did in verse 12. How is it that the kingdom is advancing forcefully since the time of John? Well, Jesus says, for... He's about to explain it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah who is to come. Friends, stay with me. This is, this is a dense portion of the scripture. Because John is the last and greatest of the prophets and an entire age wrapped up in his ministry, right? 
the age of the prophets and the law. It's the entire old covenant age. It was closing down and John was the closer, right? How so? Because after John, King Jesus arrived and he ushered in the kingdom of heaven. The one who fulfilled the law and the prophets and brought God's salvation to his people had come. So up through John, the, the scriptures pointed forward, right? All the prophets, including John, pointed forward to a coming day. But when the king arrived, now all of us, we look back and we point back at the fulfillment of that great day. Friends, John is great, but Jesus' greatness eclipses him in full. So let's retrace the flow here of what Jesus has been saying about John. Who is John? Well, he's the prophet plus, right? <laughs> he's God's special messenger that Malachi prophesied would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to pave the road for the Messiah's entrance. And since John, the kingdom of heaven was on the move in the world since Jesus had inaugurated his kingdom and, and, and brought this dawning of a new covenant. And because of John's privileged role, Jesus said that he's the greatest prophet and the greatest human to ever live. But now I want to circle back to what he said at the end of verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Friend, this blows my mind. John is the most significant Old Testament representative ever. And yet the least significant New Testament believer is greater than John. John enjoyed a unique privilege as the Messiah's forerunner, but his privilege pales in comparison to every single believer in this room. Friends, John still preached from the vantage of God's promises made, but we who are united to King Jesus by faith are the beneficiaries of God's promises kept. We understand intimately in a way that John never did the depths of God's love to us in Christ. We have been had the mystery hidden from the foundation of the world revealed fully and finally to us in Jesus in a way that John never did. We who have received Christ are participants in a new and better covenant made with new and better promises. Friends, we don't just have a law like John did written on tablets of stone. We have a law etched on our hearts. We live in the age when the Spirit has been poured out and now indwells us all individually and together as a church. Friends, John would have given his right arm to know these blessings. Beloved, when is the last time you've just sat in stunned wonder at this type of grace? You may think you're a nobody. And that's probably true. Like We are nobodies. But take it from the mouth of Jesus, you're somebody because of him. You have a more privileged status than the greatest Old Testament prophet and human who ever lived. Because you're a kingdom citizen, a new covenant Christian, united to the king by faith, you have a privileged status. Friends, this is the type of thing that ought to get you up tomorrow morning with energy and with joy. You get to represent King Jesus today. You get to experience the love of God in Christ today. You don't have to strain your eyes to see the Messiah's day. It's come and you are his and he is yours. Praise God.
Number three, how will you respond? How will you respond? Look at verses 16 to 19 quickly. So verses 2 to 6 explored John's estimate of Jesus. Verses 7 to 15 explored Jesus' estimate of John. Now we see that the, the close link between John and Jesus is, is further underlined here by Matthew, okay, and by Jesus himself. How are they perceived together by their contemporaries? Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, friends, the overwhelming response of people to John and Jesus was like a stubborn child. No, like one of my kids who won't be satisfied by the type of game that suggested, oh, how often I have lived that, right? There's a wedding game and a funeral game, and the children are not going to be satisfied by either, either one of them. Verse 18, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Friends, on the one hand, John the Baptist lived an ascetic, rugged, rugged lifestyle, right? He, di he didn't indulge in the dinner parties or drink alcohol. His lifestyle matched his message. It was an unrelenting call for people to repent in light of the, the pending judgment. But Jesus says people accused him of being crazy, being a madman having a demon. On the other hand, I, the son of man came, Jesus says, with the joy of the kingdom feast to celebrate God's salvation. I came eating and drinking and you accuse me of being a glutton and a drunk and in cahoots with the worst of sinners just because I befriended them. They're like kids who'd rather whine than play the game. People hurled accusations at Jesus and John, not because they were who they said they were, who the crowd said they were. Rather, they hated John's preaching of repentance, and they hated Jesus' proclamation of the gospel. As one commentator said, they did not want to reckon with God's claim, so they manufactured reasons for passing it by. Friend, be careful how you respond to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 19, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. God's wisdom was proven or justified or vindicated by the fruit of John and Jesus's lives and the lives of those who responded to their message. So the implication, friends, is that if you reject the gospel of the kingdom, if you turn away from the Christ, it's the epitome of foolishness. Oh, friend, be careful that in your evasion of Jesus, you don't make up excuses that sound a lot like blasphemy. Jesus is warning you here. Don't be like his generation that looked for every reason to turn away. Let me close by just saying this. Friends, all of us naturally are like Jesus' generation. We're made in the image of God, but we rebelled along with Adam, our father, right, who fell in the beginning. On our own, the Bible describes humanity as dead in trespasses and sins. We're, we're helpless. We're condemned. We are parched and starving, but without a thirst or taste for what will truly satisfy us. That's how sad our condition is. And so, friend, if you're here and this message bores you, let me urge you, pray to God. Pray to God that Jesus will give you what he called in verse 15, ears to hear. Ask God to give you eyes to see and a heart that understands your great need before him. 
And then when, friend, when God answers that prayer and ignites in your heart the sight of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, you run to him with all your strength, knowing that he gave his life on the cross so that you might be reconciled to God. And he rose again from the dead so that you might have life everlasting through him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for a text like Matthew 1, or excuse me, Matthew 11, 1 to 19. Lord, that so clearly showcases again for us who Jesus is and what he came to do. Oh, Father, I pray that our response to our Lord Jesus might be worthy of him. Father, we thank you for the grace that we read about, that we should be called greater than John the Baptist, we who are the least in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Father, thank you for setting your love on us and rescuing us from our sin, and making us children of the high King of heaven, and even seating us and exalting us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we praise you. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, that that is not walking with Christ, that, that even is bored by him, oh, Father, grant him or her ears to hear, and eyes to see, and a heart to follow Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.